everyone. Welcome to another episode of Spirit Walking with Asa Hoffman. And uh, thank you all for being patient. Uh, it has been a little bit of a Mercury retrograde kind of a day. We're getting ready for our retrograde going on. Plus, we have a whole lot of other planets that are in retrograde right now. So uh, we are tripping our way down the road. But um, this is going to be an incredibly interesting evening because I have my very good friend and soul brother on with me tonight, Adam Robinson. If you read it about him, he is the co-founder of the Princeton Review. He has written the only test prep book to hit the New York Times bestseller. He's a lifetime chess master. Uh, he is a wizard of global markets and just an amazing, inspiring human being with just so much love in his heart that he shares so freely and effortlessly, which makes him one of my favorite people to talk to. Thank you, Adam, for being here. Um, thank you. Should I unmute? Oh yeah, you are. We can hear you, so. Oh, you can, great. All good, yeah. <laughs> We're getting through the technical parts. Anyway, how have you been, Adam, through, uh, through the last couple of months? Uh, I know it's been a, a strange time for all of us being sent home, so to speak. Um, although I do know that, that you go in very well in, into that creative space and have that ability to sort of go into a germination period at times like this. But how has this particular period been for you? Well, you know, by nature, I'm an introvert. So for one, and, and the thing is, I, I expected this, I've been expecting this, not in this, this particular manifestation, but it was a matter of time that, that uh, the house of cards that is the world uh, we were in, the, the dream that we were in, um, that we woke up. Because this is actually reality. And, uh, and I think people were living in a dream. So, so my particular skill set uh, predisposes me to understand this world and to, to navigate it. So I'm, I'm concerned for the world, uh, but for me this is, Mm. Yeah, well, we have lots to talk about. Well, when you say that, so when you say, but this is the real world and not mm. the dream world, in, to what do you refer? That mm, the world has been predicated on assumptions, many things, truths, I say truths with air quotes, that uh, people have taken for granted about the world that aren't true. Hmm. And, uh, and we'll go into that in many ways. And so they, the world that they assumed was true, that they were walking, sleepwalking, I was gonna say walking, sleepwalking through, right. um, was, was not the actual world. And so that's what they're being exposed to now, that everyone is being exposed to. So yeah, to reality. To what, to what truly is. And they're realizing the extent to which things that they, they had assumed were true were not. For example, it's, it, even in everyday reality, when, um, when I extend one foot in front of the other, I expect it to be met by a sidewalk. Mm. I, I, I assume that there's, there's gonna be a sidewalk to meet my foot. And sometimes, you know, we step off a curb unwittingly and we're surprised. Oh, <laughs> and, and, and this world is much like that. People have essentially stepped off a curb, a really big curb, and they're bewildered and disoriented and uh, by things that 
again, this is a phrase that uh, you hear a lot that don't make sense and, 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 and we will make sense of it. Mm. On November 6th last year, Ray Dalio, who runs Bridgewater, the world's largest hedge fund, smart fellow, wrote a blog piece entitled, The World Has Gone Mad and the System is Broken. This is pre-COVID, he was saying this. And, and the thing is that it hadn't gone mad, actually. Um, what, his, what he was saying betrayed his worldview that wasn't lining up with the world he was observing. Mm -hmm. so he, he had particular expectations about the way the world ought to behave in particular financial markets. And the financial markets were behaving differently from what his model, his, uh, his awareness built up over decades, said it should be doing. And so he said, therefore, the world has gone mad. Hmm. Instead of saying, hmm, maybe I ought to take another look at my models. And when scientists encounter an anomaly it's an invitation to reconsider the theory. And sometimes we can refine the theory. Sometimes the theory has to be totally overhauled. And that's, um, that's, that's, that's where we are. You know, um, a guy named Kuhn, forget his first name right now, wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he said that, that theories are overturned. First, there's an anomaly. And everyone goes, okay, that's just one anomaly. And, uh, but then the anomalies accumulate and it reaches a point where the scientific community can no longer make allowances, simply too many anomalies. Right. And then, and then the theory is overturned completely, right? Like with Einstein, uh, with, uh, first with uh, relativity and then, uh, and then he created general relativity. And same with quantum mechanics. So this world has, we've had anomalies that I'm surprised people weren't more surprised about. You know, speaking of quantum mechanics, uh, Niels Bohr once famously said that after giving electron quantum mechanics, if you aren't utterly confused by what I just said, you weren't paying attention. And, and one of the things that's astonished me about the world is that people weren't more astonished by what was going on. Hmm. So we have a thing right now where people are really reacting to COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and a lot of people have talked about it as a global reset. Um, you know, there, there have been different perspectives on that. And as we're coming out of it, you know, I, I think, I wonder if, if if people have still recognized even an anomaly, much less the series of anomalies that are happening uh, and the need to, to reevaluate the world that we, we live in. Yeah, well, alas, um, people are attributing to COVID. Um, the COVID is actually not an anomaly. It's an inevitable, it is an inevitable consequence of the way we've structured the modern world for at least the last 75 years, since at least the end of World War II. It was an inevitable consequence. 
Gandhi said, there must be more to life than making it faster. And that's what we've done. We've gotten really good at technology making everything faster. Um, and one of the consequences of that, um, and there are multiple consequences, but one is communication. We travel around much more than we used to. So do diseases. And uh, so it's not just that. There are other reasons why COVID was an inevitable consequence of the way we have been hmm, living, hmm, living in the modern world. Uh, the modern world, and we'll get into all of this, uh, has been structured so that it requires growth at all costs. Growth yes. at all costs. And, uh, you know, even, you know, you hear economists talking about the gross domestic product, GDP, and, uh, you know, they refer to growth, the growth rate of the economy, as if that were the only thing. And, um, you know, not happiness or fulfillment or, or connection. And, um, and in fact, these things have been sacrificed. They've been jettisoned in the name of growth. And it's, it's left the world and will, again, in the sense that I'm, I'm introducing many topics, we're going to... Well, you can keep going right on in because this is where we want to go. And a lot of these people have been uh, listening to the show for a bit. So they're, they're familiar with some of these ideas. They're not necessarily familiar with your brilliance around this idea. So feel free. I love what well, you're so, so this is, so, so COVID and the financial crisis were, again, inevitable consequences of the way we've structured the modern world. Mm -hmm. And so what's actually gone on this isn't a financial crisis. This is actually a spiritual crisis. And so I'm, I'm gonna, I have to mm, layer in a few concepts uh, to, to give people a, a framework for understanding um, the world in, in, through my lens. So everything human is an answer to a question, to, to one or more questions. So, for example, um, I'm, I'm drinking water here, sparkling water. Hmm. It's an answer to a question. What can I drink that will uh, slake my thirst and, uh, and be devoid of um, calories and chemicals and other things? That's the answer. Sometimes I drink iced coffee. That's a different question, right? What can I drink that will give me a little pep? Um, this location, I happen to be in Los Angeles now, West Hollywood, was an answer to a question. Where can I be in the world during this time, which is a congenial setting while I wait to see where things sort out? This location is an answer to a question. Right? Everything is an answer to a question. The glasses you're wearing are an answer to a question. Right? How can you, you, you see better? Right? Uh, glasses is one way. You could squint also. That's another answer, <laughs> an answer you choose not to, 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 to employ. Um, so everything human is an answer to a question. I say that for a reason. The entire world is the sum total of all the answers we've been able to come up with as a species to satisfy human needs. And it's left us in, um, in great pain. And this isn't a this isn't an opinion of mine. 
uh, we can we can do a a, a, a Google experiment. And uh, in fact, I'm going to invite uh, uh, your your listeners to 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 go to the, use their cell phones or their laptops and uh, go to the Google search bar, right? We've done this, you and I. And um, about a year and a half ago, I was interested in, in, in writing a, a little tweet about people always getting ready to do things without doing them, just jumping right in. And uh, so I was curious what people wanted to learn how to do. Just, so I go to Google and I type in, mm, how can I learn to? So I'm gonna do that right now. How can I learn to? So if you go to the Google, it has to be the Google search bar and don't hit enter. You just hit, uh, you just let it autofill. So how can I learn to? So here, how can I learn to? And the, the number one response is love myself. Mm. Number two is how can I learn to sing, speak Spanish, sew, code, draw, ride a motorcycle, play the piano. But the number one thing they wanted to learn about, how can I learn to love myself? Think about that. We've got a world that until a few months ago, people thought was doing pretty well. U.S. stock market, all-time highs. Um, uh, the, the United States economy at uh, record low unemployment, so record high employment. Things look pretty great. Um, and then one month later, between February 19th and March 23rd, um, global equities lost more than a third of their value. Small cap stocks lost on average, almost half in four weeks, in a month, just gone, trillions of dollars gone. And, and people were what, what the heck was that all about? And so we've constructed a world uh, built on a lot of debt that's left people not loving themselves. And, and I can prove even more than that. If you then, I was so saddened to see that People were turning to Google for how can I learn to love myself? Then I went, oh, what are they feeling? So I typed in, why do I feel so? And this is something that people can do. Why do I feel so? Okay. Hmm. Number one response, why do I feel so tired? That's a euphemism for depression. Number one response, why do I feel so tired? In other words, why am I depressed? Men in particular, but also women to a lesser extent, but um, when they are depressed, they're not aware that they're depressed. For them, oh, I'm not depressed. I just don't have any energy. I don't feel like doing anything. And they reach for a Red Bull or whatever or a motivational seminar, but they're actually dealing with depression. So why am I depressed? Number two response, why do I feel so alone? Mm. Number three, why do I feel so bloated? There are a lot of eating disorders coming from 
feeling depressed and anxious. Number four, why do I feel so sad? Depressed. Number five, why do I feel so weak? Depressed. Number six, dizzy, nauseated. Uh, oh, the number eight, why do I feel so empty? Yeah. Which is, is, is existential depression. So I think we've constructed a world that not only has grown really well, grown very fast, um, we've created all these technologies, we've gotten really good, really efficient at making people feel depressed, lonely, and lost. And worse, I was so, then this, then I, I said, oh my gosh, what do they think about the world? So I type in then, and again, people can do this, then I type in, um, why is everyone else so? Why is everyone, everyone else so? Now the first one, the first one is why is everyone else so? The first one is bad at eating. It's actually from a, 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 a Parks and Recreation uh, episode. So, uh, but okay, these are the rest. Why is everyone else so happy, skinny, successful, pretty, talented, lucky, perfect? So you think about that. You've got a world that we've created to answer questions um, that have left people feeling um, alone, depressed, and lost, and thinking everyone else is perfect, skinny, happy, and having the time of their lives. And, uh, and you know, you, it's really tragic. And so, um, so the financial markets are, um, again, what we've seen is actually a spiritual crisis. And, uh, you know, since the end of World War II, we've gone into massive amounts of debt. Didn't start off as massive amounts. It started off as the American dream right? I want what mom and dad had. I just want more of it. Right? They had a home. I want two homes. I want two of everything. And, and so, and I'm willing to go into debt to get it. And that's what we've done as a, as individuals, um, and as corporations and as, 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 um, as, uh, as governments, as countries, we've accumulated massive amounts of debt. And, and uh, to buy things we didn't really need and have left us at the end of the day feeling depressed, lonely, uh, and lost. And, well, and yeah. No, go ahead. If you've got more to say. Uh, I, well, I got tons more to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say, and it's, you know, it leaves us with, you know, the payoff for buying things and getting them is often short lived, but the debt lives a long time. So we're owing energy on things that we've lost our connection to very quickly because they aren't of the heart, right? They're things. And so the way that things feed us becomes diminished very quickly. Uh, and then the things that are more long lasting, like our heart, our relationships, our love, um, aren't really fed often or aren't, we aren't able to feed them because we're so busy chasing that debt and trying to figure out how we're going to do it. So we get to that next place. So it sort of keeps us on the hamster trail. Yes. It's, you know, very well said it's, it's a hamster, tra uh, you know, uh, um, little wheel of, um, of addiction. 
you know, because people are actually looking for connection and, 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 and fulfillment and love, because that's actually what they want, the answers that they're coming up with are things. You know, people think, oh, well, if I get enough money or if I get enough success, um, then I'll so, be okay. So what do you think the question was that they were asking that led to a world that's created this? You know, because this, this really is, uh, was initially a lot the American dream that, that wound up becoming the global dream in many ways. Yeah. The American dream. So, so I'm not saying the question because there's lots of questions that have been asked throughout, you know, humanity's existence that have led to lots of challenging things that we're still dealing with. But, but pinpointing this American dream piece that's become the global dream. What's that? What was the question they do you think that they were answering? Do you know? Well, you know. Two things happened. Well, the first is we were coming off a depression and World War II. So it's, I mean, in a sense, you can see that people would just want to just like, okay, like you, you get to throw off the yoke of a depression and throw off the yoke of a world war. So, but it took on its own life. And, and um, it's, you know, even, even the, economists are just so divorced from from human beings you know they refer to people as consumers i mean think about that it's, it's to me it's obscene truly obscene to refer to souls as consumers it's just like just mouths to be appetites to be satisfied or not and so you know it it, to go back to the hamster thing, it, it sets up an addictive quality because people think, well, if I get enough Instagram likes or um, if, I, if I rise to a certain you know, success level in, in, in my career or if I get enough money, then I'll be okay. But because it doesn't work, <laughs> they think, oh, I, I just need more of it. I, you know. I thought if I got a million dollars, I would be okay, but I, I still feel kind of empty. So I better get 10 million. <laughs> Let me get 10. And by the way, in, in pursuing that race, of course, you're leaving behind your real needs unmet. Right. So, um, and people just become increasingly divorced. You know, I, I um, last year on Father's Day, um, I was in, um, I live in Tribeca, although now in West Hollywood and Tribeca. And the day before um, Father's Day, uh, I was at a, a restaurant and I saw a father and his son, I guess his son was, I don't know, six, seemed cute. Uh, that's really sweet, father and son together, having a, a meal together, I guess giving mom a chance to sleep late on Saturday morning. And, um, and both of them, I kid you not, had their, 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 um, their noses buried in their phones, both of them. You know, I mean, his father was like this, the son really a couple feet away. Listen, if there's a cute dog two feet away from me, I'm, I'm like dropping everything and playing with the dog, you know? And, and 
and here's a dad with his son. And, and think about it. The son is modeling the father. And uh, by the way, technology is very dangerous um, because it's, technology has been created to, to hijack our attention. And it, it does so by serving up a world that uh, amplifies our emotions, especially emotions of fear and anger. Because if I see a headline, one word to see a headline that makes them angry, they're going to click on that. Or, or one that uh, gets them afraid. Um, so so the, the, the internet, again, has been designed to get people to, to pay attention and to respond with clicks. And it does so with, with terrifying efficiency. And um, it's like a, a virus that maps to each person and figures out exactly um, what it needs to do to, to the indiv individual in front of it to keep him or her arrested. So do you think at a core, there's a Machiavellian uh, uh, plan at work behind technology and, and behind, or do you think it's sort of a side effect of something that we created. And of course there are those taking advantage of it, but you know, where do you, where do you think that lands? So I'm going to be coy <laughs> and, uh, and, not, and not answer that because I don't have to answer it in the following way. You know, in, in, in legal cases, um, in, com in the common law tradition, uh, there's something called obiter dicta. And so judges are supposed to uh, settle the case um, on, on as few legal um, uh, doctrines as possible. And anything else they say is deemed obiter dicta, like didn't really have to say that, wasn't required to settle the case. So you ask me, is it Machiavellian? Like, in other words, are people behind the control? or not. And so I'm going to punt on that one and say it doesn't really matter because the consequence is the same. And it's because you've got algorithms <laughs> that are they train themselves on each individual. So that's what they do. They're neural networks and they will learn very quickly what it takes to get Asa Hoffman to click on, 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 a, on an article. And uh, so it, it learns very quickly who you are and how you look at the world. And I don't think individuals, you know, can, 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 can do that. So I don't think it's any like Machiavellian in the way that, but there's certainly corporations that profit from it. Right. Well, I'm happy with that punt because it still goes in a direction I want to go, which is uh, basically I, I've listened to other interviews with you and I've heard you say that um, that we live in a, a world that's been created and that if we want to change the world and it's been created by our thinking. So if you want to change the world, you have to change the thinking in it. And so I have two questions there. You know, if you could one expand on that, but also number two, you know, how do we change our thinking when we're also being you know, the thinking, the thinking that we currently have is being reinforced by the technology, by these algorithms. Good. Game, game. So those are, those are two questions. Okay. 
Okay, so first, so yes, yeah, so um, Einstein said that the world out there, the world out there uh, is the product of our thinking. And, and to change the world, you can't change the world until you change the thinking that led to it. By the way, that's true for us as, as a species. It's also true for us as individuals. My world, Adam's world, is, is the product of my, my thinking. And to change the world, I have to change my thinking. And there are only two levers that we have to change thinking. You know, thanks, Albert, for that insight. But you didn't actually elaborate. So <laughs> I will. So there are only two levers. You have only two. If you want to change thinking, you have only two levers. Either change the questions people are asking. And when I say change, I should be more precise. You can invite people to consider new questions. You can only invite them. You can't change your thinking. But I can invite you to consider new questions. Or I can invite you to consider more inspired answers to the questions you're already asking. And those are your only two levers if you want to change things. If you want to change people's thinking. In the world right now, it's gotten very polarized. Really, it's a centrifugal world. Everything is flying apart, right? Centrifugal energy, kaboom. And, and when it comes together, it comes together in, um, in anger, right? Yeah. And anger is, not an, anger is not an invitation for someone to consider a new question. You know, Gandhi did not say, don't make things faster. He just said, there must be more to life than making things faster, which in a sense is a question. Isn't there more to life than making things faster? And, and so, so yes, yeah, so if you want to change the world, you can only invite people to consider uh, new questions or, or, or new answers. That's true even on an, on an interpersonal basis, you know? And, and people need to get real clear on the questions that people are asking um, and the answers that they're coming up with. And I, I say people, hmm, corporations need to do this. Certainly our political leaders need to, need to do this. And I, when I, probably we will touch on things that involve politics and today. And I, I am strictly agnostic. I am Switzerland. I, uh, you know, I, this, so the statements I make are involve the world. I'm not, I'm not here to advocate a political view one way or the other. So, um, so yeah, so, um, so how do you change your thinking when, when you've got the internet um, designed to keep to capture you, mm. right? And whatever you think, Asa, you will, the internet will serve up. I don't know if you know this, but if you type in, say, vacations in Europe, <laughs> and I type in exactly the same query, your responses will be different from mine. Yes. Right, based on your like, it may discover that that Asa likes nature. Yeah. 
and may just discover that it, the internet knows, the algorithms know that Adam likes cities, especially with like old cities, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the vacations it serves up to you are gonna be different from the options it serves up to me. And so one way to fight the confirmation bias, which is inherent, first it's inherent in human beings, but it's amplified by the internet, right? It's just gonna confirm anything you think. And uh, so <laughs> don't go to the internet expecting to have your mind changed. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not at all, right? It's just gonna amplify whatever. <laughs> if you go to the internet with a question and, a, and, a, and you think an answer, it's, you're just gonna be, you're gonna discover that you were right. <laughs> <laughs> like, right, that the internet convinces everybody that he's right, he or she. And, and so, um, so yeah, so the, the internet is a polarizing force that makes each individual sure that he's right. Say he, I'm just gonna use the pronoun he, so I keep going he and she. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. So it's gonna say he, and uh, so so yes, it, in in my world, which is uh, predicting financial markets yep. uh, for for the heads of very large hedge funds, I am um, by discipline. I have to train myself, uh, sort of anti-confirmation bias. So whenever I have a thesis say interest rates are headed lower and I have a logic for that. Then I also have, I set up, what do I need to see to change my view? In other words, what would I need to see in the world um, to, um, to let me know that interest rates were gonna head higher? I need to do that at the beginning. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm, I'm just gonna suffer from confirmation bias. It's very, very, very hard to see the world for what it is. It's, um, it sounds vague, but I will tell you that almost everybody literally is looking at a world that's very different from what they think. Very, very different. So just shifting gears here, because I really want to get to some of how, um, how we engage what you're talking about and how we actually engage that as individuals, you know, and, and obviously a part of it is uh, exposing ourselves maybe to, to inspirational ideas or things that open up our own hearts and drive us. I mean, there's, you know, I, I firmly believe connecting with our creativity is so important yeah. uh, for individuals, uh, connecting with nature in some form and remembering that we're nature and that we live in, mm -hmm. in, in the laws of nature to some degree, you know, um, mm -hmm. But I also want to actually go into a totally different direction, which is that, you know, you uh, had a presentation you were doing that you uh, sent off to your, to your friend, Warren, uh, Warren Buffett, <laughs> who he said, this is amazing information that needs to get out in the world. And, and I, I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but something to that effect that mm -hmm. led you to writing a book. And, and it, and it really covers the topic. It's, uh, it's how not to be stupid. Mm -hmm. And, and I think uh, the title and the thinking 
Oh, there we go. How not to be stupid. Yay. <laughs> um, what about title, <laughs> um, but I think the title and I think the information, you know, one of the things that captures is, uh, is, you know, how we think when we see something, when there's a lesson that we learn, we often think, you know, oh, they were stupid. You know, we don't necessarily think we were stupid. And, it, and it's one of the ways that we get sort of caught in some traps. So anyway, yeah. I want to sort of toss this to you to whatever level you can share a little bit about how not to be stupid and some okay. of your thoughts around this would be great. And in relation to what we're talking about. So, so actually, it's a very profound topic. So, so, uh, so, so stupidity, um, when, I, when I wrote that book, it took me a month just to define stupidity which is overlooking or dismissing conspicuously crucial information, right? It's crucial information. So you really better pay attention. Like there's a lot at stake if you don't notice it. Um, it's conspicuous, it's right in front of you, either literally or metaphorically, it's at hand, available. And either you, uh, you overlook it or you look, you, or you, or you notice it and go, what if? You don't pay any attention to it. And, and so, um, the, um, so Buffett's endorsement for my book, which is and, and back, it's not out yet, but I'm gonna release it soon. He said, how not to be stupid is, is loaded with good ideas and appropriate warnings. And I wanna emphasize the word warnings. And this is really important in the world right now with everything that we're doing. Everything, everything right now um, on, on a personal level and, and you know, and a, on a national level and a global level. So Hegel said, we learn from history that we don't learn from history. But he, he was actually profoundly wrong. It's much worse than that. We learn the wrong lessons, which is way worse because what happens in the world is people observe something and they dismiss it. But worse, they extract, in dismissing it, they extract the wrong lesson. Mm. And, and especially around stupid things. So they will observe an action that they think is stupid. And basically they will metaphorically roll their eyes and go, look at that, that's so stupid. <laughs> and not extracting the lesson. And, and I, can, I can demonstrate that and I, I will in a few seconds, but um, instead, instead of asking how might I do exactly the same thing? So this will blow your mind. So in, um, I cite this as, a, uh, as, 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 a, as an example. 20 years ago, 21 years ago, Yo-Yo Ma forgot his cello. Sorry, my bad. I'm giving away the punchline. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma was in New York City and he was giving a performance, a command performance at Carnegie uh, Hall. And you can imagine after, after, after giving a performance, um, you, uh, you're emotionally spent, right? It's an artist, you know, really putting his whole heart and soul uh, in, into, into his performance. And, um, and um, um, afterwards, uh, in fact, the next morning, he was running late for an appointment. Yo-Yo Ma in New York. Uh, Yo-Yo Ma is not from New York. 
Um, I say that for a reason. And um, he was running late for an appointment and uh, he tosses his uh, big uh, plexiglass uh, uh, cello case containing his $2 million Stradivarius in the trunk and races to the appointment, gets there in time. And he walks into the, you know, the meeting and his friend says, hey, yo, yo, where's your cello? <laughs> oh, <laughs> he had forgotten it in the back of a cab. This is 20 years ago, right, pre-Uber. And, um, but fortunately, he had the little, um, little uh, receipt. And so because he's Yo-Yo Ma, the police chief was, you know, notified. The head of the Taxi and Limousine Commission and, uh, oh, and the mayor of New York, right? Yo-Yo Ma, you know, beloved virtuoso. Let's get this cello back, right? And, uh, you know, they, they spot the taxi driver in Queens or something, you know, like an hour later. He's totally unsuspecting. He doesn't know that there's a $2 million Stradivarius in his trunk. He forgot about it. And a couple of squad cars pull up and uh, they pop the trunk and it's there. So Yo-Yo Ma is reunited with his cello. There's a huge punchline coming up for everybody. And uh, so um, he gives a, a um, an interview wants to thank New York City for reuniting him with his cello. And I'm quoting from the New York Times. He said, uh, I just did something stupid. I was tired from having given a performance the night before and I was in a rush. I just forgot. Okay. And uh, he totally didn't get the lesson. Now, this is interesting. I have to emphasize for, for the people listening what a cello means. I said it was worth $2 million. No, that's what it would cost someone if Yo-Yo Ma was willing to sell it. He's never gonna sell that. And in other words, someone would pay that to get it, but he's not gonna sell it. That, he's been with that instrument for, I don't know, a couple of decades. It's just like every, he knows every fiber, um, every wood, uh, the grain of, the, of every element of that cello. And you and I couldn't tell the difference between that cello and one that was another Stradivarius, but he could. And, and so virtuosos, I'm saying all this for a reason, virtuosos refer to their instruments as a, like their child or a limb. So think about this, Yo-Yo Ma forgot something that was the most important thing in his life. It's the most important possession, right? He would have been devastated, possibly career ending if he had lost his cello. Would have been devastated. And yet, he left it in the back of a cab. Now, what lesson, I'm asking you, Asa, and those people listening, we haven't talked about this, have we? You and I? Okay, good. So what lesson do you think he extracted from that, that event? Oh, what do I think that he extracted? Yeah. Uh, uh, that, well, I think he said it, that he was tired and stupid. Uh, so what uh, lesson going forward, after all lesson, 
going forward? What, um, that's the past. He did that. So right. what you know what? I don't know. Maybe uh, so. If I'm tired and I was stupid, then um, you know I better not rush so fast next time. Right. You would think, right? And you would think that other musicians around the world would have, like this was front page news on the New York Times. Imagine for musicians like Yo-Yo Ma, right? Like Zeus, yeah, got his thunderbolt in the back of a cab. That's not the lesson they learned. And I can prove it, it's really fascinating. Now, those people listening now, if you're listening to this, you may think, oh, what relevance does this have for me? I don't have a multi-million dollar um, um, instrument. I don't have anything worth multiple millions that I can carry around with me. And you're already falling into the trap of stupidity. <laughs> you're thinking, mm -hmm. that doesn't apply to me. But it does. So wait, this is really fascinating because I didn't believe it. So a year later, under almost exactly the same circumstances, another world famous virtuoso, Lisa's cello, in a cab, <laughs> right after performance. He knew all about Yo-Yo Ma. I'm forgetting the guy's name right now. He knew all about Yo-Yo Ma. He did exactly the same thing. And by the way, I was so fascinated, then I started to do research. In multiple instances, all of them, right after a performance, just like Yo-Yo Ma, all of them were um, outside their normal environment. They were, and they were almost always traveling. Um, all of which factors played in with Yo-Yo Ma. Now, Philippe Quint, He's a world famous um, uh, violinist. <laughs> you know the lesson that he extracted? He knew about all the other musicians. He forgot after a performance in Dallas, flies back to New York and leaves his $3 million, um, shoot, it wasn't a Stradivarius, but it was a $3 million, forget the name, um, violin in the back of a cab. Fortunately, it was recovered. And you know what he said when he was interviewed? <laughs> this, is, this tells you the lesson that he had extracted. He said, you really got to let this land. I didn't think the other guys had lost their instruments. I thought they were publicity stunts. Wow. He so couldn't believe that they had actually lost their instruments. Because he said, well, that would be the, the end of their career. How could they do that? <laughs> but he thought that they were publicity stunts. Can you imagine? Even after he himself had done the same thing, he still hadn't extracted the right lesson. So having said all of that, Asa, suppose you were a manager of, um, of um, world famous virtuosos, hmm. their manager, and several of your clients have left their instruments in the back of taxis. One guy left it on an Amtrak train, $2 million violin, <laughs> was recovered between New York and uh, DC, <laughs> was recovered. Um, what would you tell them all? Like, you're their manager now. What lesson did you, from everything I've told you, 
um, and and this will astonish you. There's there's a lesson behind the lesson. What lesson have you learned, and what would you tell them to do? By the way, I'm inviting the listeners to uh, those of you listening to think what what would what would you tell musicians in your care? So I'm asking you, Asa. Uh, well, I mean. Besides the fact that we need to develop some technology so that if they get too far away from their instrument, it buzzes on their hands. They can't leave their instrument. So let's mm -hmm. have something created here because we're talking about millions of dollars and we're in a technological age. But uh, what I would talk to them about is being present. That after the show, you need to be put present with your instrument and to realize that, that you are likely to lose it. And yes. that, that this, is, this is not only a possibility, it's a likelihood and therefore you must be present through that process and respond to it differently. So. Yes, that's beautiful. And I want to say, Asa, you are one of the wisest people that I know. And I say that because that's the wrong lesson. <laughs> Great. No, it's really perfect. No, by the way, this is really fascinating. Um, so um, many musicians thought, I better be present. I don't want to be separated from my instrument. Mm -hmm. That was the conclusion that, shoot, what was his name? David Garrett, mm -hmm. world famous uh, um, a violinist. He was in London, he's German. He was in London giving a performance at the London Philharmonic. And afterwards, he's very excited. He's going to meet his parents. London weather, being London weather, it was raining. And in his rush to see his parents, he'd forgotten to take off his uh, concert slippers, which are very slippery. And um, he had created a knapsack, like a, a custom-made knapsack to keep his violin on him. He's never gonna put it down. It's not gonna happen to him. So he's racing to meet his parents and he slips on the marble in the rain and he falls backwards on his knapsack, crushing his violin. Oh God, this is an awful story. <laughs> so, so now, so it's fascinating because even that's not, so no, notice he extracted a lesson. I'm not gonna be separated from my, my instrument. Right. Wasn't the right lesson. Some people extracted another lesson and this is a, a practice. They're, they have what are known as uh, minders. So after a performance, they will pass their instrument over literally to like a trained professional. And their job is just to ensure that that instrument gets to some pre-established location. Hmm. But so what's not, the lesson, Adam? That's, that, the real lesson is this, and everyone's overlooked it. If after a performance, when you're tired and in a rush, and um, um, almost, these almost always occur when they're traveling, they lost something that would be career ending. Mm -hmm. If they could do that, they're in danger. I wouldn't be worried about the instrument. I'd be worried about the musicians themselves. If you could leave a $2 million or $3 million instrument in the back of a cab, I'd worry about that guy stepping off the sidewalk. 
It's not the instrument that was in peril. They were in peril. Right? Think about it. Anyone who could leave an instrument in the back of a cab, something worth several million dollars, and would, they would be devastated way more than the money. And something they love. Right. You know, that, that in a sense, that would be covered, the money part of it would be covered by insurance, but you can't replace it. It's irreplaceable. The key thing was that they were in danger. The lesson is that in those circumstances, you are so, you're in what I call the stupid zone. You're going to do something stupid. For those guys, the stupidity manifested itself as forgetting an instrument. It could easily have just walked into traffic and gotten hit by a cab. Well, so, so wait, what's the answer though? So if that's the case, you know, I talked about getting, or people have talked about getting present because one of the things that's happened when you're in the stupid zone, you're not present with what's happening. You're, you're in the future, you're in the past, you're in the experience, you're everywhere but here. So yeah, so what, what you what need say more than that, you're saying that doesn't answer the question, though, or the problem. So, so, so notice everyone extracted the wrong lesson. The focus was all on the instrument. It should have been on the person. Right. And the key thing is this. Each of the musicians should have said not, I would never have done what Yo-Yo Ma did. That's actually what each of them thought. Each one of them knew about each success of one. And they said, I would never do that. But they should, the lesson they, they should have been thinking under what circumstances might I do something like that? That's really key. And that's the more general lesson in life. We read stories about people doing things. Mm -hmm. Some of them horrific, right? Some of them are the, you know, some of them accidents, somebody, some tragedy. Some of them are not so accidental, right? Mm -hmm. And we think, oh, even in judging, we say, oh, I would never do that, you know, or I would never, you know, make that blunder. Or, I mean, I hear people say, America would never do that. I'm talking right. about us in relationship to other countries, and then the next thing you know, we're doing certain things and we discover we're doing them, so yeah. The key, so the key lesson in history, that's Hegel saying, we learn from history that we don't learn from history. Really that, again, we learn the wrong lesson. We think we would never do that right, as a society or as a company or as an individual, when instead, the question we should ask when extracting the lessons from our own lives and the experience that we, we encounter is, under what circumstances would I do that? Maybe not that exact same thing, right? You know, so for example- that's no key that, that, uh, that you might not do that exact same thing, right? Um, oh yeah. Like Yo-Yo Ma. That doesn't mean know. that we won't get the lesson. So, you know, I, I also found uh, there one other example. I don't know if we can tell it in a really Cliff Notes version, but I think another one that really illustrates it is uh, the one about the pilots flying with the oh. aircraft. That, can you, because that really, it shows the life or death critical of what you're talking about. Could you bring, could you tell that in a short version or no? Well, I don't think I could do it in a short version. I, I, there's so many other things we could move on to, but the key thing sure. is this, is, is to realize, you know, you know, you say be present, and here's the thing, here's the problem with that. You'll think that you're present. Hmm. You're not, you're in the stupid zone. Again, even thinking, I will be present. 
yeah how do you know and 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 so that that's really the challenge is that when you're in the stupid zone i, I don't i don't know that you can actually be present to the degree that that you think you might unless you've trained yourself to be so like well, rigorously train. train yourself we have to rigorously train ourselves like meditate I like think, every day i think humans have to rigorously train themselves to get into the present absolutely yeah like but by the way being present when the situation pulls you out of presence yeah you know, kind of easy to be present every morning and you know you're going to do your meditation or something great now be uh, contemplative and and meditate when someone's screaming I don't know, obscenities at you. Now be present so, without responding. So I got two questions. Is, is the book available? And, and, uh, and number two is in the book, do you give strategies? Like, so if you're telling us there's the stupid zone and being present isn't a good solution, do you within it give strategies for recognizing when you're in the stupid zone? Well, it, it'll be ready, it, you know, I'm releasing it soon, next couple of months. It's not, you know, but yes, I do. One thing is to be aware that when, when, these, when certain factors are present, mm -hmm. so for example, actually this is worth knowing, is it? Um, so there's seven factors that can, can put you in the stupid zone. You don't need all seven factors, but these are the seven factors. Being outside your normal environment, look at the world right like if you travel to another city you're outside your normal environment um this world is everyone's outside of the normal environment okay mm -hmm. um having a sense of urgency rushing by the way that can be done in a positive way like i could be rushing to a birthday party right it's not a sense of necessarily of you know like i'm scared of something but a sense of urgency rushing uh uh, being in the presence of a group, mm -hmm. also a big danger. Again, I'm, I'm listing seven things. Those are three. You don't need all seven. Any two or three and you're in big trouble. Um, and they're additive. Uh, being in the presence of an authority, like police. Mm -hmm. um, being in the, um, any task that requires intense focus. Um, predisposes you to stupidity. Uh, information overload mm -hmm. is the, the sixth. And, and the last is um, physical or emotional uh, compromise, stress. All seven factors are present in hospitals. All seven factors are present in emergencies, like today's world. So I was just gonna say, I think all seven factors are, are the state that the world generally exists in at this point. Well, right now, yes. So everyone can assume that they're in the stupid zone. <laughs> really, that's got to be your starting point. Now, this is important. So, so one of the things is don't do anything that puts your finances, your reputation, your health or your well-being, or that of people you care about <laughs> um, at risk. So if you look at a at a medicine bottle, almost all medicine bottles have little warning labels, like prescription metal. And it says, um, warning, this medication 
can affect uh, your um, mental and physical, sorry, mental and physical um, functioning. If affected, don't operate heavy machinery or drive. Mm -hmm. There's a huge problem with that warning label. They've done multiple studies. No one pays attention to them. One. Two, if you are affected, you won't know it. You're not going to go, oh, I'm feeling a little woozy. I better not drive. No. You'll go, oh, a little off. Okay, I can still drive. <laughs> and three, if you shouldn't be operating heavy machinery or driving, shouldn't be doing a lot of things, right? Don't climb a ladder. Don't sign a contract. Don't go hang gliding. Uh, you know, don't, don't, um, don't make public statements, don't tweet <laughs> or post pictures of yourself. Um, don't, uh, don't get married. Uh, don't uh, quit your job. There are lots of things you shouldn't do if you're in the stupid zone, not just operating a car, like operating heavy machinery or driving, right? The label should really say, if you take this medication, don't do anything. <laughs> 24 hours and um, so so one is really to recognize that that the entire world including our our political and corporate leaders that everyone's in the stupid zone and the thing is they are literally blind to crucial information right in front of them literally blind and um, and they're making decisions though that have long-term consequences really very dangerous so what do we do while we're in the stupid zone? You know, if we're all in the stupid zone, we need to uh, create new questions to, uh, or, and, you know, come up with new questions to have new answers, to change our thinking, you know, but we're also in this zone where we're not in clear thinking and you're saying do nothing. Well, what, what do we do? Okay, well, one is to pause. I mean, and by the way, as you know, you can address that to individuals. There's what we do as, as, a, as a society, but there's also what we do as individuals. So what are we to do as individuals? Okay, so the first is get someone who's outside the stupid zone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for example, if there's a disaster right outside, right out there, and they pull in the experts to the disaster zone, then all the experts, they're also in the stupid zone. You need some people who are outside, one, who are not in the stupid zone, okay? Again, being in the presence of a group or authority um, puts you in the stupid zone, right? Uh, by the way, so these factors, so one is to, to keep experts, don't let them get together, <laughs> like in Congress. Don't let them get together, uh, or committees even very dangerous and uh, be careful about um, authority and what you need is someone so for distribute them and also um, you need say a devil's advocate right you need someone who's who's um who's taking the other side of things uh you know i i, I used the example before of what would I need to see to change my view, right? I'm, I'm, I'm actually looking for, um, um, so for example, somebody thinks, you know, um, we should 
shut down the economy because of COVID. Okay, what would you need to see to tell you you were wrong about that decision? And if you can't answer that question, if you don't know when you're wrong, you certainly don't know when you're right. So, but think about it. What happens is, remember one of the things about stupidity, one, I would say if there was one catalyst that really like, that the one thing that almost always tips people into the stupid zone is a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. So notice everyone is demanding of corporate and political leaders, you gotta do something, do something now. I, I used the example before of the questions people are asking themselves, right, and the answers. A lot of politicians, again, this is apolitical, uh, all politicians, all leaders, one of the questions that they're asking themselves, also true of corporate leaders, how, is how can I appear to be doing something? How can I appear in charge right? until I figure out what the hell's going on? Everyone's asking me to like do something. How can I appear to know what I'm doing? That's a question that they're asking themselves. Not a good question. It's a, it's a natural question. And it's a question that arises because of the demands of people. You got to do something right now. Right, right, right now. No. Pause. That's a big one to pause when um, this is something that you need to train yourself to do. And you you spoke of presence. And so one thing uh, there's a, a, um, in in Russian sort of tradition, going back centuries, when they go on a long trip, they, um, a family or an individual before they walk out of their apartment with their bag, you know, bags, they will sit down, put everything down and sit and do nothing. Say for a minute, not meditate, not do anything, just sit. It's not even for me to sit here quietly and say nothing here, right? Not easy. And, and in that moment, you're, first you're acknowledging you're about to shift your environment and by the way, if you can't sit still, like, oh, oh, I can't do that right now. You already know you're in the stupid zone, you're rushing. But you have to train yourself to do that. So I would say one thing that people can do is really train themselves to pause before acting. Yeah, I think that's such an important one. Um, I also, what I heard in, in what you were saying is is not just getting lo- lost in lists of pros and cons and decisions, but actually landing on a decision and asking yourself, what would I need to have a different point of view? You know, what would I need to see to have a different, different thought here? Because it's a more of a critical way of accessing uh, the thought process to really think about whether or not something feels like the right decision or not, or to even recognize whether you have clarity on the opposing points. You yeah. know, it's, it's actually a way of thinking. You know, where we, instead of adding up a list of, of things, it's actually really looking at the action. Oh, I'm doing this. What would I need to actually see something different to make a different decision there? Right. So, and, uh, and, and yes. You know, I think I need to buy a car right now. You know, I'm in the country. What do I, you know, I think I need to be a, buy a car. I'm going to buy a car. What would I need to see to not do that? Instead of what are the pros and cons of buying a car, you know, and sitting in the list, actually looking at it from a more critical place that, that, 
it makes it more dynamic because you're looking at the polarities of the energy. Uh, it's very much, yes, you're, you're, it's, it's very well put, uh, as, as you always do, uh, the polarities. You're, you're coming up with a, an action and then coming up with the, sort of the, the opposite polarity and going, okay, well, what would I need to see? Like, I think we should raise taxes, say. Right. What would make me say I should lower them? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I think personally, I mean, I, I think of it that way always because energy, I know if we push any polarity one too far in any direction, it's going to get pushed back in the other direction. It's just what, what's going to happen. It, it's repetitive throughout history and it, it's just the nature of living in a polarized universe. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't mean we can't have polarity, but it means we have to look at how extreme is this polarity, how extreme is this decision. So is this sitting in a polarity that's going to find its harmony somewhere in here? Because nobody sits in the middle, right? We're, we're all mm -hmm. sort of dancing back and forth in polarities. But are we in one where there's a relationship between the two polarities? Or are we in where we're no longer in relationship with the two polarities because we're at the opposite extremes? Yes, you know, it reminds me of exist in that center point, you know, in that in relationship of polarities. Yes, so, so, um, so one of my maxims, I try to, Charlie Munger, uh, Warren Buffett's uh, lifelong business partner. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, he said, take a simple idea and take it seriously. Take mm -hmm. a simple idea, take it seriously, which I think is, is so, it's like the secret to success, pretty much with anything, whether it's a business or launching a movement, take an idea and really take it seriously. Not lots of ideas, take an idea. And, and so I try to, reduce the complexity of life down to really simple things I can remember. And one is a, a rule is if you're not getting the results you want, change what you're doing, right? Which is in a sense a polarity thing, right? Um, but people don't. What they do is they double down on what they're already doing. It's not a polarity thing. They amp up, right? It does. So if you're trying to improve your, I don't know, your 10K time, you know, and your training and your time isn't improving. Most people, they train more. Maybe what you should do is train less, do something different. And it, it doesn't matter whether it's in your, you know, your personal life or as an individual or your professional life or in a business or in the country. If you're not getting the results you want, change what you're doing. And a step in the opposite direction is, um, is usually a, a good starting point. Right, your thing about polarities. Yep. Instead of moving so, forward, try moving backwards. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to move, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is really interesting. I also feel like since we're here, can we just bring up real quick that there's uh, another book that you have there that's uh, uh, Warren and Charlie's Bedtime Stories. Do I have the title right? Or oh, Charlie, Warren yeah. And Charlie. So, so, I, so, yeah, so, I mean, I'll talk about it. It's kind of so that that's mm, um, Warren Charlie's bedtime story, uh, which uh, seems like a a kid's book, and I meant it to seem like a kid's book, but it's um, I I took um, I took everything that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger ever said about investing and uh, distilled the core philosophy of it and um, and and put it into a story, kind of like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But the hero of the story is a 12-year-old. And, um, and, I, and I have the 12-year-old 
Billy Smith derive everything that Munger and Buffett ever said from basic principles. And, uh, you know, um, the thing about investing, you know, this is, this is, so I have this, the front cover of the book, you'll see it's a, a baseball being pitched at, at a boy and you see a little strike zone there. I don't know if you yep. see that. And yep. so Buffett, again, it sounds like I'm talking about investing. I am, and I'm talking about more than investing. So Buffett said the stock market is like a, uh, a pitching machine and all day long it pitches you stocks, right? Twitter at $33.22, right? And you can swing at it or you let it go by. And most of the time you should let them go by because most of the time they're not worth swinging at, right? General Motors at $14.19, you know, whatever. Gold at, you know, 1300 and whatever dollars. And so he was talking about the stocks being pitched at you. Think of them as invitations. Mm -hmm. And you can either swing at them or not. And so what they said is that you should actually swing at very few. In, in baseball, they call them fat pitches, right? It's just so, such an easy pitch and you just swing for the fences. And the, the same principles that Buffett and Munger have articulated over their you know, lives um, are applicable to lives, our lives, because you could invest money, but in life we invest our time, our most precious resource, right? And yep. so, if you view people as, as, as invitations, as, 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 um, or throughout the day, there are any number of pitches, how we spend our time. I could spend it with this person. I could spend it talking with you. Yep. Or I could spend it napping or listening to, to, to music or reading roomy poetry or whatever. And and to be sure about how we're spent investing our time, which is the most precious resource because the opportunity cost of misspent time, especially in today's world is, is, you know, incalculable. Um, so to be aware of what's being pitched at us every day. And most of the time, I let, let them go by. I want to put this out there just so people can find it. Uh, uh, there's a website that you have up that's IamAdamRobinson.com. Mm -hmm. uh, IamAdamRobinson.com. And, uh, and uh, you can go there. And actually, they can pre-order the book, I believe. Uh, and all the proceeds are being donated, right? Donated to charity. Because, <clears throat> so Warren, people don't know this, when Warren was 12 years old, uh, so this is 1942, mm -hmm. right? Depression, World War II. His father took him from Omaha to, um, to New York City. 12-year-old mm -hmm. Warren Buffett. And, go, and they visit the New York Stock Exchange. And, um, and afterwards, when they left, Buffett told his father, whom he revered, he said, Dad, one day I'm going to become the richest man in the world so that I can give it all away. Mm -hmm. So he's 89, Munger's 95, still go to work every day. 
and 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 by God, he's delivered on the promise. He's given away like a hundred billion dollars. Yep. And and so so you know, there's a word that appears in almost every interview that Buffett has ever given, um, and the word is fun. He's had a blast, and 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 in having a blast, he's going to give it all away. And it was never about the money. And so, you know, I'm, I'm donating the profits, all the, all the profits, because that's what Buffett has done, you know? And, and um, yeah, I think it's seek to maximize fun. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, we've got a country that's seeking to maximize growth, <laughs> make things faster. Okay. How about fun? And really think about it. If you, if the society were designed uh, to maximize fun, uh, everybody's fun, um, it'd be different, it'd be a different <clears throat> world we lived in. Well, I know that you lean in that, to the world that way. I mean, I know that, that you smile easy uh, and, and you look for, for reasons to have fun or, or places to connect where their joy might, may exist uh, just naturally. You know, is it, uh, you know, do you think people can learn to do that, that have been so predisposed to? Yeah. So, so whenever anyone's, whenever I experience a negative emotion, mm -hmm. uh, anger, frustration, mm, any negative emotion, um, it's a sign to me that my attention is misplaced. That's all. <laughs> my attention always is in one of two places, uh, either the task at hand, whatever I'm doing, or the person in front of me if I'm with other people. And so, so the learning to be, people say, oh, Adam, you're so positive. You're so like, like unrelentingly so. It's, <laughs> it's really a mindset and a mindset to find the fun and opportunities in any given situation. And if there's a person in front of me, the connection, whatever fun and, 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 and connection um, that I can have with the people around me. And I really don't see any point to live any other way. And, and so even if I encounter say some, someone negative, I'm, I don't stay negative for long because I'm immediately pivoting away looking for the fun and the, the, the opportunity and the connection or the fulfillment or the love uh, in any given situation. You know, um, think of, think of a, like a, uh, a, I don't know, a, a cheetah, you know, hunting for prey. It's not going to be distracted by anything. It's just looking for prey. And for me, I'm always on the hunt for the fun and the engagement in any given situation. And I'm not going to be distracted by a bird that catches, whoa, no, I'm not after the bird. And so is that a place where, where, uh, where stupidity can come for you at times? If you're, if you're, focus on fun over there or do you, do you ever get too focused on that that you miss something that well, you no because the you know the you know the playful state i'm always playful 
And yeah. so the playful state is the powerful state. And I don't get attached to things. And remember, one of the factors for stupidity is intensely focusing on one thing. Right. And when I say, you know, in that sense, I'm not a predator. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, it's got, it's like going after that. That's what people do, right? They get fixated on an object or a goal, right? Right? Which is an invitation to be stupid because while you're focused on that goal, and I don't care what the goal is, by the way, the goal might even be doing something for someone else. But if I fixate it on something, then I'm necessarily stupid about everything else, right? Because my attention is focused here, right? I get kind of tunnel vision. And if you add tunnel vision along with a couple of other factors, like a sense of urgency, um, being outside your normal environment, you're, gonna, you're now in the stupid zone. And so, um, so I think in there to be playful. And, and I think it's possible always to be playful. Um, Churchill said that war is a game played with a smile. And if you can't smile, step aside. And, um, you know, I, it's not to say he was a perfect human being, but, but he was, a, but he was, he certainly dealt with England at, you know, World War II. Horrific times. And, and even in times like this, there's always joy to be found in any situation. I, I think it was, um, it was either Henry Ford or Thomas Edison, one of them said, there's a better way, find it. And for me, in any situation, there's joy, find it. <laughs> Sometimes I have to be creative. Really, doesn't matter. I, if I walk into an elevator before the door opens, I'm wondering what magic is going to happen when the door opens. And if it's empty, fine. When I get in, I'm wondering what's going to happen when the door opens next. And, you know, the, you, you really have to stay alert um, and to to your environment because the way to think about it, I've said this before, I, I view the universe as like trying to punk me in a good way. Mm. And you have to be alert. You really have to be alert. The universe is offering any number of, of opportunities as long as you're alert to them. You really have to pay attention. Benjamin Disraeli said, the secret to success is to be um, ready for your opportunity when it comes, but you also have to spot it. And sometimes it's not always obvious what the opportunity is. And um, well, I love this part because I know you to be somebody always looking for that sense of wonder and always to be, uh, I like that you use the word magic, what magic is on the other side, because you really live from that place that, that you are living in a magical universe and in a magical world. And I know that that's had direct impact in your life uh, in different ways. And I, I, I think of a story you once told me about uh, stepping out at Macy's. I think you were with your mom and stepping out of Macy's and, and looking across the street. Is that oh, right? 
So, and, so uh, and, yeah. that was, and that started a really pivotal relationship in your life, I believe. Well, so so just to set it up, <clears throat> uh, long story short, uh, this was um, it was Easter Sunday, and I was mm, 16 years old, and uh, I was with my mother, and we were on the corner of 34th and uh, 6th, and uh, uh, so I was diagonally across from Macy's, not on the corner of Macy's. So this is Easter Sunday, thousands of people going about their business, that, right? May, you know, Easter Sunday. And I was with my mom. And uh, again, long story short, uh, at the time, my hero, my, uh, well, one of my heroes was Bobby Fischer, the chess player. And at the time, this was before he won the world championship. And he was not a well-known, unless you were a chess player, you would not have recognized him. Right? Mm -hmm. Two years later, when he won the world championship, he was literally the most famous person on the planet. They said number two was Muhammad Ali, to give you an idea of how, like what a celebrity he had become overnight. Anyway, um, I, had, I knew all of his games by heart. I, when, I, when I started to play chess, I studied one person's games, Bobby Fischer's. Like imagine you wanna become a songwriter and you only study uh, John Lennon's songs. That's all you do. You don't study anybody else. You just John Lennon. That's it. And um, so I'm with my mother. And uh, I was a little bit upset because we had just finished second place at the high school nationals. And it was a little, because we should have won. And we, we did the next year. But that year, we only finished second. And, and anyway, I'm with my mom on Easter Sunday. And out of the corner of my eye, in the crowd, I spot Bobby Fischer. And I'm, I turned to my mom and I said, Mom, I... I'm sorry, I know I said I would spend today with you, but that's Bobby, I will see you later. And I, you know, I, I dashed through traffic and, because I thought I would lose him, but I might go into the subway there on 34th and 6th. And, um, and I ran up to him and I, I said, Mr. Fisher, Mr. Fisher. In 19, because I knew all of his games by heart. Imagine knowing John Len Lennon's, all of his lyrics by heart, every single one, you know, thousands of songs or whatever. And I knew every game he had played because uh, I didn't try to memorize them, but I had because it's all I studied. And um, I remember running up to him going, Mr. Fisher, Mr. Fisher, you know, eight years ago at the U.S. Championship, when you played Ryshevsky, why did you play Pawn to King Rook 3? I moved sixth. Like, he looks at me like I'm some alien, right? And at first, how did I recognize him? And I run up to him. And the first thing I, I talk about a game he had played eight years earlier. Like, who's this kid? He was 20, 28 at the time. And uh, yeah, 28. And he said, uh, I'm going to lunch. Want to join me? So that spotting him like that was, I was primed because first I'd only studied his games. And, you know, I said, Disraeli, be ready for your opportunity. Well, boom. I, somehow he materialized. And I say somehow. Because in fact, I just learned, I just figured out, I've had so many experiences like that in my life that only recently I learned the, how to make it happen. <laughs> like you'd say, what are the odds that you would meet your hero on that corner that day? A hundred percent. I don't mean on that corner, but it was 100% that I was going to meet him for sure. And, um, and I only learned the secret Mm, in, in February of this year. Like I only dot connected and realized the, 
the secret to that. And uh, the secret to making your heart's ambitions happen. By the way, I wasn't expecting to meet him. I wasn't. Like he was a recluse. He was, and, um, and he stayed your friend for a long time. They, your mentor. Yeah. Yeah, he was my mentor. It was like, and this was two years before he won the world championship. Yeah. And, and I got to spend time with him. And you know, maybe he had a dozen friends in his whole life, and I was one of them. And um, so, so what's that secret? Are you going to share that with us? Yeah, so the secret, I'm going to start with a, so I'm going to invite everyone, I mentioned this before, uh, to start with um, the movie Slumdog Millionaire. And uh, so Slumdog Millionaire is a, um, a lot of people saw it, it came out, I don't know, like 11, 12 years ago. And it's worth watching because it actually reveals the secret in that movie. And if you notice, uh, by the way, I apologize, there's vacuum cleaning outside my apartment. Oh, is uh, that what we're hearing? I thought it was horns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm so predisposed to New York City that I, I was thinking I was hearing horns. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, and, you know, many years ago, I was in, I was in, uh, I was in LA. I was uh, in mm, Santa Monica in a hotel on my birthday. And, um, and uh, wondering what to do is Saturday morning. And uh, my uh, hotel, my, uh, you know, coffee and eating breakfast in my hotel room started to vibrate and shake. And my first thought was, I'll be damned. I didn't know they had subways in, in Santa Monica. It was an earthquake. <laughs> it, was the, it was the aftershock of the, the 93, you know, lasted for 30 seconds. It was terrifying. Uh, so yeah, so I'm in LA. Um, so the secret is this. One is to have a, is one is to have a pure intention to stay locked on something that you, that you hold in your heart and you want and you know very well. And then to assume, and again, if you watch Slumdog Millionaire, this plays out, um, to, um, to be aware of what you notice because along the way, God or the universe will be giving you gold coins like think a video game, gold coins, but you're not gonna know what the gold coins are, mm. right? Like why was I on that corner walking towards Central Park? But oh, forgot to mention, at the time I lived in Illinois. I wasn't supposed to be on that corner. Hmm. Like walking up to Central Park on, like, what was I doing there? What was Fisher doing? And how out of thousands of people did I spot him, right? And so, so noticing is really key. Again, to go back to Benjamin Disraeli, to be ready for your opportunity when it arises, That's the, right? And, 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 and to be ready, you have to spot it. It's so key because it, it may, not, may not be apparent. And I, I, I give you, an instance of this, that this is where I dot connected in, in London. So I was in London and uh, this is in uh, January, late January. And uh, 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 I had a date. She wanted to go to this really um, uh, trendy restaurant. And uh, we didn't have reservations. And it's the kind of place you take, you know, weeks to get a reservation. 
and it was a Saturday night, just no way are we gonna get in. She said, well, let's try. So we go and she asks and there's no way. They say, sorry, it's like, you know, in a month you could. And there's a mob of people trying to get in. And I said, let me try. So I go up to the hostess station and I, the hostess, I just smile. <laughs> and just smile. There are people like clamoring to get in, you know, like they're, we have a reservation, it's late. Why is, anyway, and people trying to get in, you know, slipping them 20 pound, 50 pound notes, trying to get in. And I just smiled and she looks up and goes, yes. <laughs> I didn't say anything, I just smiled. <laughs> I did. She said, do you have a reservation? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I didn't ask. I didn't say the damn thing. I just said, no, I don't. Because everyone was like asking her for things. And really, I just thought, I'm just going to connect with her. <laughs> and she goes, wait right here. And she runs into the restaurant. She comes back out. She goes, Wow. And she sat us. Now that's not the story. This is the beginning of the story. So we're leaving the restaurant and uh, I go up to the host station. It's now the end of the seating. It's kind of quiet. Two hosts there and I, I go up to her and I say, what's your name? And she said, I'm not going to say because um, it's going to give it Samantha. And I said, Samantha, thank you so much. She said, you're so welcome. I said, that was really nice. I said, I'm going to give you a surprise tomorrow. She said, really? I said, yes, I am. I'm going to give you a surprise. Um, what I wanted to do was give her a copy of my book, which you know, Invitation to the Great Game. It's not out. Anyway, she was so nice. She said, she said, what's the surprise? I said, I can't tell you. It wouldn't be a surprise. And she turns to her other hostesses, again, I'm making up names, Annabelle. Annabelle is going to give me a surprise. She said, I wonder what it is. I said, well, you just have to find out. Anyway, the next day, I put the book in my shoulder bag and fully intended to come over and drop it off. I didn't. I was too busy. London is really sprawling. It's really hard to get around. Anyway, I didn't get a chance. And the next day, carried around with me, didn't, didn't get a chance. In fact, every day that week, I didn't get a chance. And I'm really bummed with myself because I had said I would drop it off. Mm -hmm. She was very excited. And I didn't follow through. It was my way of saying thank you. And um, anyway, I'm now leaving London. It was late January. I'm leaving London and I'm kind of bummed with myself. But I said, that's okay. I'm going to be back in a, a few weeks. I have to give a talk in mid-February. I'll drop it off then. So I come back in mid-February three weeks later. And every day I carry the book with me, but I'm even busier than the first trip. I don't get a chance. To, it's now Friday, five o'clock, and in a few hours I'm gonna leave London. And I, I'd had um, a tea with a friend of mine, colleague uh, in uh, Mayfair, and somehow wandered over to Piccadilly Circus, which is a zoo. People think traditional London, like you know, pictures of London, Piccadilly Circus, a zoo. It's this roundabout with, you know, big double-deckers and, you know, mass confusion of people and cars and buses. And Friday at 5 o'clock. 
And I'm, you know, I don't even know what I'm doing there. I don't like crowds. And, um, and I'm pissed with myself because I'm leaving in a few hours and I didn't get a chance to drop off the book. And I don't know when I'm going to be back in London. And um, anyway, I notice about 50 yards away, I notice a, um, an old man, right? Thousands of people, Piccadilly Circus, five o'clock, offices spilling out, everyone's excited for the weekend, going shopping or whatever, dancing. And I notice an old guy. And he clearly was a, an immigrant trying to sell, he was trying to stop people and sell them something, or give them something. He was trying to stop people and no one was stopping. No idea. But then I noticed someone did. A very tall woman who stopped and I could tell from behind, very elegantly dressed. And I, I and not only stopped, but like leaned in, didn't like just give him five pounds and like, okay, here. But was like listening. And I thought, wow, that's really special. I want to see this play out. So I jog over kind of quickly because I don't know how long it's going to last. This little vignette, right? There a million things that could have caught my eye, but that did. Anyway, I jog over and I look and I go, Samantha? <laughs> and she looks at me and goes, ah! Wow. Yeah. Now, what are the odds? So she said, how did you find me? I said, well, I have to tell you the whole story. Let's have tea. We did. Anyway, she said, you know, Adam, I got to tell you, I, I don't know why I got off at Piccadilly Circus. It was a stop before I was supposed to get off. I just got off the underground. I just got, and I thought, oh man, what, what am I doing in Piccadilly Circus? I said, I, same thing. Wow. Now, and she said also, she said, by the way, if you'd come the next day to give, give me the book, I wasn't there. I was fired. Oh, wow. So was the other hostess. If I'd shown up the next day, the book, she wouldn't have been there. And then I couldn't have said, well, oh, but Annabelle, I could, she wasn't there either. Some other people were fired. They just like, just let go of a bunch of people. By the way, if she had been there and I'd given the book, I wouldn't have learned anything. Yeah. Because just like Fisher, so all I wanted to do was deliver a book. And same thing, you have to, you have to notice your environment. And by the way, notice what caught my attention. It was an act of human kindness. Yeah, it was the act of human kindness. I did notice that. And I, I ran over because I wanted to see that. That's it. Mind you, I had to pack and leave for New York in a few hours. I had a million things on my mind. But out of all of that, it was like a, a tap on my shoulder or a whisper in my ear. I don't even know what, but I felt I got to go there and see that. <laughs> I don't even know why. And so, so just like, why did I look over there? You know, when I saw Fisher, I'm like, why? And, and when I look at other things that have happened in my life, they all happen in the same way that, that you, you're alert to the possibilities around you. And, and to assume that, that as long as you stay true to something, I had no agenda other than giving her the book because I said I would. That's it. I could have mailed it because I said, 
I was going to bring it. Couldn't have mailed it, could have done any number of things, had it messengered, but I didn't because I said, it's like a, my, my, my word, I said I was going to do it. So, so that, and if you watch Slumdog Millionaire, the same thing. Really, everyone, Slumdog Millionaire should be required viewing. And the key thing to watch, to deconstruct, watch what Jamal notices in every experience. That's the key. You got to notice what he notices. I've seen it, but I'm going to watch it again. Because you got to notice that's really the key thing. That's the secret. What he notices and why. So we have to wrap up soon, but I want to take some time to, to wrap around this kindness thing. And, uh, yeah. and really with where we're going, you know, we're, we're in such a polarized world right now. I mean, obviously we have this election coming up. We have ah. a polarizing president and, and polarizing politics across the board. Um, uh, and, and we also have a lot of polarization and, you know, people coming out, do they wear the mask? Don't they wear the mask? You know, uh, all of this stuff, you know, it's, it's just, it's been so intense. Um, and we haven't even, you know, we, we didn't even touch on Black Lives Matter tonight, which, you know, it's, well, uh, it's been such a, an interesting, but what I want to, but what I want to wrap around mm -hmm. is, is, uh, is, is how we lean in, you know, how do we take some, you know, you've talked about these different things, you've, you've talked about, you know, these questions, we've talked a little bit about, we didn't even talk that much about it, but you know, these, the financial markets and, uh, oh know, my gosh. Yeah. Well, so, so let me so talk about is how do we, yeah, stay connected. Go ahead. You can. Okay. So it's so funny you say that because so w immediately when it happened, mm -hmm. I meditated for mm, the better part of a week on what can I do to change the dynamic? Mm -hmm. And there were several things that impressed me about that incident. Uh, George Floyd. One is that is that someone was um, not just that an act of evil, but just someone died. But that people's impulse was to photograph it, not to stop it. It's very interesting. Remember, I said before about. Hold on, just think about that. Think if the cop had had a kitten in his hands and was strangling the kitten. A crowd would have like done something. There, by the way, there was a, um, I believe, pretty sure, 90%, 95% sure, there was an EMT, uh, like somebody said, actually, a woman said, uh, he can't breathe. You're, yes. you're actually killing him. Now, but, you know, and, and by the way, think of the courage I took for her to do that. Mm -hmm. And yet, nobody mobilized to stop it. They, they photographed it. Well, thanks. That's a lot of good. And by the way, think about that. The instinct of a lot of people is to photograph a crime rather than what can we do to stop it? Right? I'm not... I'm not you know, uh, what's it called, uh, 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 armchair quarterbacking, right? After a football game going, well, I could have done things differently. But I actually meditated about that. Like what, how can we train citizens for witnessing a crime for anything, something they want to stop? 
and they are mobilized to stop it rather than video it. Because that's really a, um, it's, not gonna, it's not complicit, but the instinct really of a lot of people is just, oh, video. Then you get 20 people videoing it, the outrage, but not stopping it. And I, I realize they're cops. But if I'd seen that- well, And I was gonna say, there were people that were yelling at the cops. And there were a lot- No, but that's not enough. Like, yelling is not enough. Right. That doesn't, that doesn't, sorry, doesn't do it. I spent a week and I'm still thinking about it, right? Yep. And, and, and people, what? So here, for example, because Black Lives Matter, what can we do not to show support? Like, okay, that's nice. Don't mean to dismiss that. Right. But it's not going to change things. Let's look at situations. What do we want to change? Well, we want to change in a very specific way situations when police encounter certain situations that they act differently. Right? There's that. Right? So, Absolutely. Right? One. That'd be one. Um, another would be that people who are witnessing something that they have um, that we train them like with a, with with cues to respond in a certain way to stop it not to video it or to shout because that well thanks so much do anything right and and so there and by the way i don't even think it would be that hard to devise ways human beings could mobilize in a situation. Now, by the way, with cops with guns, well, that's a very dangerous situation. Yes. And, and so how can that situation be diffused by people and actually stop it, right? And I'm sure there are creative ways to do that. This reminds me, I think it was in 1964, uh, there's a famous case of Kitty Genovese. Do you know the story about the young woman? Uh, I think she was, hmm around 30, seven o'clock at night in Queens, coming back, Kew Gardens, coming back home, and she was murdered. And she was shouting for her life. And there were many people that heard her shouts and could tell from the nature of the shouts, she's being murdered. No one did anything. It was a famous case. And so, so even there, sociologists have studied that case, right? Like why do people in groups, remember stupidity, one of the factors, if you're in the presence of a group, one of the problems with groupthink is everyone looks around at what everyone else is doing. And if everyone's shouting, then I'll shout. Or if everyone's videoing, maybe I'll video, right? And the problem is that it's not getting the results you want. Change what you're doing. And, and I am sure that there are things that can be done to diffuse physically dangerous situations in real time, but you got to be trained to do it. Um, so there's one aspect of that, again, because Black Lives Matter, um, is uh, police, all, not just police, you know, National Guard, the people look up Kent State, 1970 college kids were just demonstrating anti-war 
all right? government authoritarian people, all government empowered authoritarians. Well, especially those with weapons. Mm -hmm. um, right. So in 1970, Kent State in Ohio, uh, college kids were demonstrating peacefully about the war in Vietnam. And the president of the college called the National Guard in. Well, if you call a National Guard already, they are predisposed. This has got to be serious if you're calling us. They come with their, their weapons ready, right? They don't come to observe. Right. And, and, and they had the guns pointed at the kids, teenagers. And, um, and one of the guns of the National Guard went off. Of course, that was predictable. When the college president called the National Guard, that was predictable and shot with the gun went off. And then all the National Guard thought, oh my gosh, we're being fired upon. And they started shooting indiscriminately at the college kids who were running away for their lives. Four kids died, shot in the back as they were running away. And, and so in situations like this, um, um, you know, that they invite again stupidity. And you know, again, You've got authority figures and authority figures with weapons. <laughs> like, wow. So again, because Black Lives Matter, like there, there's a hashtag, not Black Lives Matter, but because Black Lives Matter, then what, right? What are we gonna do differently? We're not doing things differently. We're gonna stay the same, right? And uh, so that's what we need to devise. And you think about the equations there, you either change the response of the, of the, of, the, of, the, of the police, um, or, you, or you change the response of, of, the, of, the, of the people who are observing and are in a position, uh, sometimes anyway, to do something to stop it. So, I have a, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get distracted, but somebody asked a really interesting question, which I, sure. I, uh, I thought was interesting here, which is uh, what literature have you most often gifted uh, that's not your own? That's a, that's a, it was an interesting question that popped up. You know, it's so funny. Tim Ferriss tried to pin me down on that. Like, like he was relentless. He, and I said, really, it depends on the individual. Really, because I give gifts. Like what I would, a gift I would give you right. would be different from one I would give to, to one of my other dear hearts. It would just be different. Uh, so it really depends so much. He really kept trying to pin me down on that. You know, I, I, I it's, uh, it's funny because I do think uh, in one way it's, it's telling of the person what they would give. Right. Um, but the other, uh, the other factor is I would know that about you, that I know how you are about gifts that you, you literally tune into people you know, and really look at who they are and what you might give. You really Listen, got to around I, them, I, not you. So wait, I wrote this. This was this is. I wrote this for the public, but I wrote it to give as a as a Christmas present for Buffett this year. Yeah. I think that's the kind of gift I give. I wrote him a book. <laughs> um, so didn't right. So so I don't I don't know if there's any one book that I would you know. Well, you told uh, us what movie to watch. What piece of literature would you say we should all be reading right now? Hmm. You know, <laughs> how about that one? Well, Emerson's essays are 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 uh, fantastic. Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, and and almost each line is a 
a gem of wisdom, each line. Uh, Rumi poetry, Rumi's great. Um, those are two, like really if I were pressed, I would say Rumi or Emerson. It's interesting, I go to poets. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. <laughs> yeah, I, go to I like the choice. Yeah, uh, but Emerson, both, though, his essays, they're written, they're, although he was a poet. Yeah, both of them really address the, uh, the uh, consciousness of individuals. Yes, yeah. the heart. At the end of the day, you're left with your feelings. And, and one of the things about the modern world is we created it with our head, with logic. And logic will tell us how to do things. Like we've gotten really good at technology. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're totally divorced from our hearts. And at the end of the day, we're left with our feelings and our hearts. And, um, you know, I, 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 I guess I want to leave with one thing to be sure I, is, is everyone needs to work on his or her perfect day. Like it's so important to just take, pick up a journal, pick a date in the future, I don't know, a couple years ahead, but a specific date and describe that day, a specific day. I don't know, so Monday, September 19th, 2022. I don't know, pick a date and describe your day from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. Every detail. When you look out the window, what do you see? And why? Who's in bed with you? By the way, maybe the person is cooking you breakfast. Maybe the person is not in bed with you already or, or, or meditating. But the key thing is to describe every detail and the why of it. So if you say you look out the window and you see the ocean, then you state in, in your, I love being near water. Like whatever it is, start with your perfect day. And because uh, this world is so surreal that you really got to anchor on your perfect day and then which people and which opportunities can fit into that perfect day. I think that's really key. Start with your perfect day. It's a way to orient people around what brings them joy. Yeah. Oh, your perfect day. It's your perfect day. And by the way, the punchline is it's your every day. How have you structured your life? So when you walk past the couch, describe the couch. Like, like why have you chosen that couch? Right? Because I like curling up and reading books or I like napping on my couch, whatever it is, every detail. Who's the first phone call of the day? You know, uh, who do you eat dinner with and why? Every detail and the why behind it. And then, you know, it gets back to what I said earlier about opportunities and, you know, life, every moment, this moment right now, an hour from now is an invitation to do any number of things. Every moment is an invitation. And every person that you meet, an invitation. And to, to, to dance with or not. You can decline the invitation or, or you, you can counter invite. <laughs> and, uh, but that's so important. Start with your perfect day. In this love, crazy world, got to get centered. I love so much that you said tonight uh, in, in, in 
that we came there. I really also, you know, one of the most important things I, I've got out of everything you're talking about is that we've constructed a world, you know, out of, you know, answering the question of consumerism or answering the wrong questions, not just that question, but many of the wrong questions and, and from logic and that we need to move our questions towards the heart and how do we feed the human heart and humanity. Uh, yeah. and, and that's, and so what, what I guess I would take from what you've said tonight is that's what we need to do as individuals is to start doing that for ourselves, which is like describing this perfect day uh, and, uh, and begin to build our life around our heart. And that's how we, that's how we begin to lean in. It's one of the ways that we can begin to lean in. Uh, yes. Now. And, then, uh, and then the questions you're asked is, and any, any given opportunity, any yeah. given invitation, is, is this gonna get me closer to my perfect day or not? Yeah. And if it is, great, okay, let's do that. Yes. I love that. Adam, uh, you have, uh, so you have three books that are all not yet quite available, although at least uh, Warren and Charlie- The next couple of months, so they will be. So my question is, how do people stay uh, aware so that they know when they're available? Because I really, by the way, I, I gotta tell you, you should read all three. The, the How Not To Be Stupid, uh, The Great Game, uh, The Invitation to the Great Game is, game is, is so much fun and, uh, and, and so full of wisdom, but it's such a, a joyful book to read. Um, and, uh, and wow, Warren and Charlie's Adventures is also uh, yeah. so smart, but really also very playful and fun. It really is you, <laughs> and, and yet it's them. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a nice marriage there. In, in that book. Yeah, so, so how do people stay up and how do they know when these things are available? Well, so I am Adam Robinson is my website, it's my Twitter, it's my Instagram, you know, and, and, um, and they'll all be available um, in the next, well, Warren and Charles Bedtime are like in a couple weeks. This is kind of already a soft launch for it. And yeah, uh, that's already got pre-orders on it. So the other books will come up and be listed on the next, yeah. next couple months. Yeah. On the same website. I mean, that's like, because this writing thing is a side, it's a side thing. I'm, I'm, you know, monitoring global markets, you know, right. launching a financial company and stuff. Like there are a bunch of things I'm also doing. So the writing is like, a got to yeah. fit it in. Well, it's a good Not side a thing. Day. It's a good side thing. And I can't wait till the books are out there in the world. Thank you so much, Adam, for all your time tonight and for being here. Oh, thank you. Just the best day. We had so much fun. We did. And as always, I love spending time with you. So... Thank you for being here. And everybody, you know, I know it was a long show. Thanks for sticking it out. Uh, obviously, it was well worth it uh, with Adam on board. So, Adam, have a great night. Thank you. Bye. Bye.